You may be seated. Good to see everybody here. It's always a questionable thing on Father's Day what the crowd's going to be. We have uh, Mother's Day, there's usually better attendance, and people make a big thing out of it. Father's Day, you know, I have that imaginary conversation in my mind. It's like the wife asked the dad, hey, what do you want to do for Father's Day? Uh, stay home, you know. Um, but uh, glad to see that we did have some dads show up today, and I know that we'll continue to, to have a great summer. Uh, we are starting our new series, God in Baseball. And um, it gives me two opportunities. One is that I can usually count on Southeast Texas that there's going to be baseball fans, particularly Astros fans. And that uh, it also gives me an opportunity to teach on the book of Ephesians. And so that's what we'll be doing in the upcoming weeks, talking about baseball and God and studying this wonderful book of Ephesians, which is an important book and important to us as United Methodists in particular. It was one of John Wesley's favorites. So as you think about those two things, God and baseball, just invite you to think about the first time that you ever had the chance to go to a baseball game, whether it was when you were a kid or maybe you've had the opportunity to go to a major league game. I remember my first one that I went to when I was about 15 years old. Uh, my mom somehow got tickets for us to go to the Astros game. They were given to her by a coworker, and uh, there's no such thing as free tickets, right? Um, there's always parking and food and everything else that goes along with it. But we had a great time. And I remember going to uh, what was the home of the Astros at the time, the Astro Dome, which was huge at the time. It now looks tiny compared to the Energy Stadium, right? And um, I remember going there, and we um, went in, and I'd seen the Astros field on television. I've had friends tell me about it. Uh, but it just nothing compares to that experience of seeing it for the first time. Um, you look around, and there's all the decorations. There's all the pictures of the players. Uh, Astrodome had that wonderful Astro turf. You remember when they tried to do real grass in the Astrodome? It was pretty horrible. And, uh, and when you get to go to the game, it is a, a whole other experience because you can watch it on TV, but until you see in person the pitcher throwing the ball to the catcher and how fast that is, you have no comprehension of what's really going on. And I know growing up they tell you to keep your eye on the ball and that you're supposed to pay attention to the pitcher and the catcher, but you miss, what, 90% of the game if you only pay attention to that. I mean, there's nothing so uh, amazingly synchronized and planned out as when a hitter drives an infield single through left field, right? All of a sudden, all the players are in motion. Everything is working in sync, and it's kind of like a, uh, a synchronized dance in some ways that all these things go into motion, and it's just amazing to watch. All the years of practice accumulate into spectacular performances, and when you see it on that level, it's, it's just something even greater. And of course, um, playing the game is a whole other matter as well. Um, but when you think about that reality of going to the game for the first time. I think it ties in so well to what we talk about in our faith as a Christian people when we talk about how we long for people to know God, right? What's our motto? To know God and to make God known, right? And that when we talk about that reality, what we're hoping for is that people that don't know God, that have never experienced God or have ever encountered God in a real and tangible way, uh, that they would have that because it, it changes everything. 
And in a moment, we're going to read through a prayer that Paul writes, which is exactly all about that. He writes about how he longs for and he hopes for people in the early church, as well as those that don't know Christ, to encounter God in a, a whole new way. And so that's what we're going to look at, and it's on the, in the book of Ephesians. And if you would like to read along with me, you can. It's uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that makes God known to you. I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call, what is the riches of God's glorious inheritance among believers, and what is the overwhelming greatness of God's power that is working among us believers. This power is confirmed by the energy of God's powerful strength. God's power was at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead and sat him at God's right side in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and angelic power, any power that might be named not only now but in the future. God put everything under Christ's feet and made him head of everything in the church, which is his body. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. And so earlier in this letter, Paul is talking about the great things that God is doing through Jesus Christ, and then he begins to offer up a prayer. You know, he prays for some specific things. And if you and I were trying to think about how do we help people know God, uh, what do you think your prayer might be for them? Right? You know, maybe they're going to go to a Christian concert, or maybe they're going to go to a revival, or maybe they're going to come across a book that helps them know more about who God is. And yet, when Paul prays, he has some very certain things that he knows that they need to have happen in their lives. And one of the things that he lifts up and he says, I pray that God will open the eyes of your hearts. You know, that you will be enlightened. You know, that light will come through your eyes. That you will be able to see things in a whole new way. You'll go from being somebody who has heard about, that has maybe studied, or maybe had some hearsay statements about who God is, to all of a sudden experiencing it for the first time. And the wording that is there is that it's a, a knowledge, a, a knowing, a way in which we have a deep, intimate understanding of who God is, that more than just being aware of a certain subject matter, that we have encountered it, that it's soaked into our lives, that it has become part of who we are. That's the kind of knowledge and insight that Paul is praying for these people to have, something deep, something real for their lives. And I think that's so essential that each of us has that kind of experience with God. It's so helpful. It makes all the difference when we finally see God in a real, in a new way. And maybe it is that we've never had that happen, and it's okay. I know that for my life, I struggled for many years trying to understand and to comprehend who Christ truly was until he became real to me. And it's also okay if we're at a place in our lives where our faith's kind of dried up and shriveled. That we need a way in which something new could happen in our hearts and in our lives. Because God can bring that about through his spirit and through his word as well. To give us new life and to give us new hope. And so look at, let's look at the specifics of what Paul prays for. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call. I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call. 
And Paul, or a disciple of Paul, whoever wrote it, if you want to debate authorship of Bible books, then you can buy me lunch sometime, all right? I'm going to say Paul. And, um, and he writes to them and he says, I pray that you have enough light, that you, you see well enough. And he says, I hope that you see well enough the hope of God's call upon your life. And it's such a powerful thing to think about that when we are talking about people coming to know God, that one of the gifts that they get is a hope. One of the treasures that they receive from God is hope. It was amazing about 10 years ago, I read an article in which it was um, being written by psychologists who were not necessarily Christian. And they were talking about the power of hope working within people's lives. That it's something that's intangible. You know, you can't measure it. There's not a gauge for it. You can't hold up your uh, Star Trek thing and kind of get a gauge on hope in people's lives, and yet it's so essential. And we're talking about people who are depressed, who are anxious, who are worried. Uh, hope is such a, a big help when it comes to changing their lives. If you can get to think about anniversaries or upcoming events or things that they're happy about or excited about, it, it pulls them out of that in a powerful and a mighty way. So like, you know, hope, that's a pretty good thing. And I was thinking, well, 2,000 years of Christianity, we're pretty clear that hope is essential to human life. And Paul is saying, this is what I, I pray for people to have, a hope in what God is calling us to, a hope of what God is bringing about in our world, that they see it, you know, it's tangible in their lives. They, they see the way that God is compelling people to do great things. They see the way that God is calling people to help the poor and to make a difference in the lives of the needy, the way that God is calling people to be about the work of his justice, and that each and every step of the way, and each and every time they see that, it builds hope within us and carries us into new places in our faith. The next part that he writes about, he says, and, and what is the overwhelming greatness of God's power? He says, um, and what is called, what is the riches of God's glorious inheritance among believers? The riches of God's glorious inheritance among believers. So he talks about hope, and then he says, they also see the inheritance that God has put into our lives. What do you think about when you, you imagine that? That there's a, an inheritance that God has promised us, that God has prepared for us. What do you all, what do you think about that? When I think about it, I, I think about it in terms of God who has everything. What, what possibly is it that we could give you know, that would be like a valuable piece of inheritance or a valuable thing that we would receive. And, and to me, what it means is that God is preparing a, a people, that you and I are part of the great inheritance that God is placing into the world, that we are to be uh, people who are enlightening and inspiring and that are bringing about change within our world, that the greatest gifts that God has given us is His only Son, Jesus Christ who came into our world to be our savior and our salvation, and that in following him, we become a people that are like him, that we learn to love and we learn to sacrifice, and we learn to be about the work of peace and justice in our world, to be a part of that great inheritance that he's bringing about in the world. And then the next prayer that he has is that they also see not only the hope and the great inheritance of faith, but also to have an overwhelming greatness of God's power, to see the overwhelming greatness of God's power. And there's, I mean, there's the simple things that we could point out. We could say that this is the God who created billions and trillions of stars, that even the smallest star in our universe is greater than any 
power our world has ever generated from atomic bombs to you name it, it doesn't compare with what God has created in the stars and the heavens and the greatness and glory of creation. And he's saying that power, you know, that is what is at work in our world. And even when we don't see it, even when we can't comprehend it at first, it's still at work in our world. And then in the, the greatest power we experience is that, that wonderful power of resurrection, of being people who can be brought from death to life, from being filled with sin to being filled with God's grace and God's mercy and, and God's forgiveness. And that power alone to change our hearts and our lives is far greater than anything else that we could create or anything else that could be put into our world. And he's saying that, that power is at work within us when we begin to see it and to understand it and to have it be a part of our life. We begin to know God in a new and powerful way. Verse 22 says, God put everything under Christ's feet and made him head of everything in the church, which is his body. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ who fills everything in every way. And when you think about your own faith and coming to know God, one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is other people. Having other Christian people in our lives, having friends who can speak God's truth into our hearts and our lives, who can witness to us, who can put their arms around us when we're hurting, who can be there for us when we're suffering or when we're celebrating. It's one of the greatest gifts that we have. And Paul says, I, I hope you see the gift that you have in that. Not only that we have individuals in our life that are there for us, but that we have a body of believers, a church. One of the funniest passages that I think is in the Bible happens in Corinthians, in which Paul speaks to the church in Corinth, and he says, you're no longer eating the Lord's Supper, you're eating the idiot's supper. It's just funny to me because Paul, you know, we think of him being so kind and gentle in some ways, you know, a great Christian person. He's like, y'all are eating the idiot's feast. And what he's saying was that apparently in Corinth, the rich people got off of work early. They would come through the, the meal, the common meal that they had together. They would eat all the good food. And then the poor people would come later on in time uh, at the end of the day, and they would get the leftovers, right? And Paul is saying, that's not the Lord's Supper. That's not what God had intended for you. You, in fact, are eating the idiot's supper. You're only doing what's good for you and your own selfish needs, and you're missing out on seeing the body that is among you, to seeing how important everybody is to Christ. And Paul says, I hope you see that as well. I hope you see Christ's body, the fullness of Christ, who fills everything in every way. So as you think today about the people in your life, your coworkers, your family, your friends, the ones that you long for and that you hope for and that you sigh for, that they would know God, know God in a personal and real way. Is that your prayer for them? That not only would they have an experience with God, but they would gain the hope and the faith and the richness and the power of God within them. And will you pray for that to happen in their lives as well as your own? It seems like such a small thing, but that's exactly what Paul is instructing his people to do. You know, to pray for that to happen. Because we can do fantastic music, pick the right songs, 
get the lighting, the smoke machine, we can get movie clips, we can do all those amazing things, but at the end of the day, what God desires most for us is for us to know Him in a very real way. And the simplest path toward that is through our prayers of seeking God in our daily life and our daily prayers, inviting Him into our hearts and into our lives. There's a really famous uh, group of Christians in a community in the Mediterranean. And for decades and decades, they have been a people who have seen God do mighty and miraculous things. And a number of years ago, I read a book about that community and about how they live their lives. And there was a fascinating passage in which one of the monks that was part of that community spoke to somebody who was just, you know, like a, a woodcutter or a baker or something like that, a, a person who had not devoted their life to constant prayer and community. And the conversation between them went something to the effect of the, the lay person, the ordinary person, the, the worker, the, the you and I, you know, that asked the question of how could we really know God the way that people in your, your faith community do, the way that the monks do, the way that they experience God in mighty and miraculous ways. And, and he, he looked at them and he said, oh, it's, it's so impo- simple, but it's so hard. It's so simple because we're invited to pray. And we're invited to call God into our hearts and invite him into our lives. And yet it's hard because our hearts are so turned within themselves. We become so hardened and jaded and, and worried and frustrated that it takes time for God to begin to move in mighty and powerful ways within us. But he says if we don't lose patience, if we don't give up hope, we don't forget what God is already doing within our lives, it can still happen for each of us. So that's my prayer. I found a great um, poem by John Updike on baseball, and uh, he talks about it in a, in a really fun way. He says, this is his, his poem on baseball. He says, it looks easy from a distance, easy and lazy. Have you ever thought that about baseball? Easy and lazy. He says, even until you stand up to the plate and you see a fastball sailing inside an inch from your chin or a circle in the outfield straining to get a bead on a small black dot, a city block or more high, a dark star that could fall on your head like a leaden meteor. The grass, the dirt, the deadly hops between your feet and over-eager glove. Football can be learned and basketball finessed, but there's no hiding from baseball. The fact that some are chosen and some are not, those whose mitts feel too left-handed, who are scarred at third base, scared at third base of the pulled line drive, and at first base are scared of the shortstop's wild throw that stretches you like a gutted deer. There's nowhere to hide when the ball spotlight swivels on you and the chatter around you falls still and the mothers on the sidelines, your own among them, hold their breaths and you whiff on a terrible pitch or an infield, achieve something with the ball so ridiculous you blush for years. It's easy to do. Baseball was invented in America, where beneath the good cheer and the sly jazz, the chance of failure is everybody's right, beginning with baseball. And I love that poem because it just says, it all looks so simple and easy from a distance. It's when we take upon the challenge of getting to know God, of praying, of being in community, of standing in the most difficult parts of our lives and trusting that God is enough 
that Christ is enough that we really grasp the greatness of our Heavenly Father. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, it is to you that we lift our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations. You are the loan, are the source of our faith. You are the one who perfected it. And we pray and ask in this time that you would continue to fill us with your spirit. Help us, Lord, in the weeks to come to know more about you, to have our eyes opened, and to share our experience with others.